This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. The 15th chapter of Mark's Gospel. Uh, This morning we'll read verses 15 through 39 and uh, see if we can arrive at an understanding of uh, the centurion's moment of discovery uh, from Mark 15, verses 15 through 39. It's a lengthy reading, and I'm not going to ask you to stand as we read. In, uh, starting at verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the, uh, the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide which, what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. <clears throat> Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, And gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. What uh, catches my attention this morning is the reaction of that Roman centurion in verse 39. Uh, I'd like for us to think about that statement, but I also want us to look into the person who made the statement and see if that has any bearing on the statement itself. So let's begin by talking a little bit about the uh, Roman military establishment. Now, I make no claim to be uh, uh, a military expert. I'm certainly nothing of the kind. But the few things that I have come to understand uh, about the military of that day, uh, I'd like to try to pass on to you this morning. At the time of the Judean Revolt, the Roman army consisted of 28 legions uh, spread across the empire, together with some uh, auxiliary units that were raised from uh, the local populace. Each legion was uh, composed of approximately 5,500 professional soldiers who signed on for terms lasting 25 years. And I read that only Roman citizens could serve in that uh, army. Uh, But according to the Praetorist Archive, citizenship was granted upon enrollment. The auxiliary units that I mentioned were locally organized cohorts that did not necessarily consist of Roman citizens, but citizenship was granted after the completion of 25 years of service. Each of the 28 legions was divided into 10 cohorts. Each cohort was divided into six centuries. Each century consisted of 80 to 100 soldiers, and the soldiers in each century were led by a centurion. That centurion was responsible for discipline uh, in the regiment. Some have said that centurions were actually the cement which held that uh, Roman army together. Uh, It is said that the Roman army wouldn't have become what it did uh, without the centurion as the linchpin of those centuries of soldiers. Each individual centurion had uh, considerable authority and power. Uh, There were times when he had to oversee uh, not only wars and battles, but also individual executions, uh, like the one that we've read about in this passage. Not only in war, but also in peace. The morale of the Roman army depended to a great extent on the centurion. Let me give you a glimpse of uh, the character and personality of the type of man Uh, a centurion probably would have been. Polybius writes, they must not be so much venturesome seekers after danger as men who can command, who are steady in action and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and even to die at their posts. A number of centurions uh, are mentioned in Scripture And it seems to me that they are always presented in a positive light. Uh, In Matthew chapter 8, we read of a compassionate centurion who came to Jesus uh, seeking the healing of his servant boy. Jesus said, I'll come right away to your house and heal the boy. And the centurion said, 
No, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. If you only speak the word, it will be done. I am a man under authority, and I have men under my authority. And I know when I speak, one goes and does what I say. I know that if you speak a word, you have the power over disease and death. That centurion had somehow discovered that Jesus has all power in uh, heaven and on earth. And that all things must obey his voice whenever he speaks. Then we read in Acts chapter 10 of another centurion, one named Cornelius uh, in Caesarea. The Bible says that even before he was converted to Christ, he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his house. Uh, He gave alms to the people and prayed to God always. And uh, that can't be said for very many people before they become Christians. And sadly, not for some, even after they're saved. Cornelius was the first Gentile believer that we read about in the Bible. In the book of Acts, we read of uh, at least three uh, different centurions on three different occasions who prevented the Apostle Paul from being harmed physically and even from being put to death. So uh, I think we can get a glimpse, just a slight glimpse, of the type of individual a Roman centurion was supposed to be, an impartial courageous and loyal person. He tended to be an upstanding member of society, even high Roman society, displaying a high degree of morality, and even at times when it was called for, human tenderness and compassion. Now, let me shift gears here for just a moment. If we had to fix blame for bringing Christ to this point in history, uh, to the point of being driven up Golgotha's hill, and nailed to a cross, where would we start? I think we would have to start, of course, with the Jews, and in particular the rulers and elders of the Jews. They were the ones uh, who were crying out in verses 13 and 14, crucify him, crucify him. They were the ones who were so aggressively opposed to Jesus, to all that he said, to all that he stood for. It's often true that those who think that they're in high position uh, uh, morally, socially, tend to be like that. Uh, they, they tend to be actively opposed to the gospel. Why is that? I really don't know. My guess is that it's a threat to them, uh, just as Christ and those who followed him were a threat to the Pharisees and the scribes, the chief priests, and the Sanhedrin. Other people, uh, often uh, in uh, high society, in whatever capacity, feel that Christianity is a threat to their well-being, to their uh, state in life. So the Jews were active in the crucifixion of Christ, but they were not alone. Pilate also was instrumental in the crucifixion. Uh, In Matthew chapter 27, uh, we read that he wanted, at least at the beginning, uh, to give Jesus his freedom. But when he saw uh, that he could not prevail but that rather a tumult was made. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Sadly for Pilate, the washing of his hands and the declaration of his innocence made absolutely no difference in his guilt. He knew Christ was innocent, saying more than once, I find no fault in him. But he was a typical politician. He was sympathetic with Christ, Yet he wanted to remain neutral for political reasons. 
But see, uh, uh, a disclaimer of neutrality where Christ is concerned is simply not possible. Uh, You are with Christ or you are against Christ. There is no middle ground. As the hymn writer says, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Third among those who crucified the Lord Jesus were the Roman soldiers. And that would include the centurion uh, that we're talking about this morning. Uh, They took him. uh, They scourged him. They mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on him. They put a purple robe on him. They bowed down before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They took a reed and hit him on the head. They beat him. They spat upon him. They cursed him. They mocked him. They blasphemed him. Now, of course, they didn't have the power like Pilate had to condemn him, but they carried out the wishes of those who commanded him, or that commanded them, and uh, particularly the crowd. They went along with the flow. The Jews who were active, Pilate, who was passive, the Roman soldiers who were compliant, all were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. They were all guilty of rejecting Christ. Not one of them was singing, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. But now you might be saying, wait a minute, what about this centurion? Uh, He was at the cross, yes, but you don't know that he even laid a finger on Jesus Christ. And you'd be right. I don't know. In fact, I I believe quite the opposite. I believe he probably did not lay a finger on Jesus Christ, simply because of his role as a military commander. But the fact of the matter is, and, and this is intrinsic to what I have to say to you this morning, he didn't need to lay a finger on Jesus to share in the guilt of his crucifixion. He was a Roman soldier, yes. He was there at Calvary. But the reason that I would place him among those who crucified Jesus is not the fact that he's a soldier, nor is it the fact that he's uh, present and presiding over the execution, but it's the simple fact that he's a sinner. You see, the, the centurion is really just like all the rest of us. We all had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We all bear personal responsibility, a personal guilt. For the death of God's precious only begotten son. It was personally for you and me that he hung there between heaven and earth. And I want us to look at him today. Uh, I want us to see the spittle running down his face. I want us to see the blood, the wounds, the tears. I want us to see him hanging there with dislocated joints. To see the nails, the thorns, the spear. Listen, if that is all you see, you are not seeing Calvary. What you need to see on that cross is your sin. Your your sin and mine. Because your sin and my sin put him there. It was your sin, my sin, uh, that he took upon himself and carried to that awful cross. Maybe you've heard the story, the illustration of the man who... Uh, put his head on his pillow one night and began to dream that he was there uh, on Golgotha's hill. He was watching as they stretched Jesus out on that cross, uh, as they pounded the nails in with the hammer, as they lifted the cross and dropped it into that socket prepared for it 
jerking his bones all out of joint. The scene kept repeating itself. And then at some point, when he saw a Roman soldier driving the nails into the hands of Jesus, he felt each blow of the hammer as it fell, as if it were being driven into his own heart. And he couldn't take it anymore. And in his dream, he ran toward that soldier yelling, Stop, stop, this is wrong. And he grabbed the soldier's arm and jerked him around, only to look into his own face. He was that soldier. We all are that soldier. Our sin nailed him to the tree. He was wounded for our transgressions, said Isaiah. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You and I put him there. It was our hammer. Those were our nails. Those were our thorns. Because those were our sins. Now, not only was this centurion among those who crucified Jesus, but something else we can say about him is that he witnessed the greatest event of history. Uh, You can tell me all the stories of Jesus, and I'd love for you to do so. They're wonderful to hear, wonderful to share. You can show me his miracles. You can tell me all about his life. But there's no doubt about it. The cross has a special meaning, a special impact on our hearts. The hymn writer George Bernard put it this way. Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above. To bear it to dark Calvary. In the old rugged cross. Stained with blood so divine. Such a wonderful beauty I see. For it was on that old cross. Jesus suffered and died. To pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross. And exchange it someday. For a crown. Now. The centurion had seen many people die in battle. He had been given authority, I'm sure, over many executions and crucifixions just like this one. But he had never seen a man die the way Jesus died. As battle-hardened as he must have been to have risen to the rank of centurion, he could not help but be deeply affected by the way Jesus died. Let's look back again at at the last few hours of the Lord's agony on the cross, starting at verse 33, where Mark says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, what was it, do you suppose, that brought on this declaration from the centurion? 
Contextually, <clears throat> it was what Jesus was saying from the cross. Uh, you, you saw it in verse 39. Uh, when the centurion saw that he cried out and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So we wonder, what did Jesus say that convinced this battle-hardened centurion that he was the son of God? I'm sorry, Mark doesn't tell us. If Mark were the only witness that we had, uh, we might never know what Jesus said when he cried out at this point. So we need to turn to other witnesses. What about Luke, Paul's uh, traveling physician companion? In Luke 23, 46, Luke says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Never before had this seasoned veteran warrior heard a dying man give up his own spirit in death. But that was not the only thing that he had heard from Jesus that day. Earlier in the day, when the crucifixion first began in earnest, he had heard Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <clears throat> Excuse me. That was a new one for sure. Screams and curses and threats he had heard. Weeping and begging for mercy he had heard. But never before had he heard the one who was being crucified praying for the forgiveness of the ones who were crucifying him. But wait, for whom exactly was he praying? Well, for the Jews and their rulers, their elders, they were instigators in his crucifixion. For those Roman soldiers who had stripped him and ripped his flesh to shreds with the cat of nine tails and who were driving the nails into his hands and feet, perhaps at the very time that he was praying this, for the, excuse me, the centurion who was in charge of the execution, he realized he was praying for him. But again, let's never forget who else uh, shared responsibility for his death? You and I are among those for whom Jesus prayed, Father, forgive him, forgive her. And because of his sacrificial death in our place, we actually can experience that forgiveness freely, completely, by confessing our sins and our need of a Savior, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Oh, but uh, Brother Shine, don't you realize you're talking to seminarians this morning? Don't you realize that we would not be here if we did not have a belief in and a, a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, yes, one would hope so. But can we afford to take so much for granted? We cannot just assume that a person who enrolls in seminary is a born-again child of God. So it's our individual responsibility to search our hearts today and make certain of our relationship uh, with God through his blessed son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you have come to realize that uh, you never have had that genuine conversion experience. What should you do? Well, you should approach uh, Dr. Holmes or Dr. Atterbury or one of this faculty, um, any member of the faculty, and give us the opportunity to show you how you can know that you will spend eternity 
and the loving presence of him who died for you.